Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This is episode number 185 of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. And this week we are sitting down with the executive director of Rugby Colorado and a, a lifelong rugby guy, Angus Peacock. Uh, and I got to say, man, I've wanted to talk about rugby on this podcast for so long now. Uh, I've played a lot of sports. I've been a fan of a lot of sports. And I have to say, for me personally, nothing can compare to rugby. Uh, I know a lot of people for this podcast are from the United or who listen to the podcast are from the United States. And I also know rugby hasn't really caught fire in the United States, which is mind blowing. And we get into that in this episode. Um, but sit down and watch it and better yet, go out and play it. Uh, it's so much fun. And the camaraderie, the, um, the growth that you go through playing rugby is for me anyways, like it was indispensable. Um, the toughness that I built, the mental capacity for growth. Uh, like I said, the companionship with my teammates, um, it was so necessary for me at the time of my life. When I played, uh, I played from senior year of high school, um, through college, through grad school. And it was the thing that I, that I loved. And I, I, like I said, I really enjoyed team sports. I had played team sports my whole entire life growing up. Uh, senior year, they have a rugby team at my school for the first time. And as soon as I played that, I'm like, man, I loved all sorts of team sports, but there's just something special about this one. So uh, anyways, I'm excited to bring Angus on the show because really for the longest time, like who's the person to talk to about rugby? Um, and also I have to say, just throw out this out there for you. Um, if you're listening for ultra running content, uh, Angus also competed, uh, in the Gobi March and that's a six day stage race through the Gobi desert in China. Uh, he competed in 2010, I believe. And there's a, there's definitely a story, uh, that, that he tells in this show that's intense and just just it's a it's a crazy experience for sure um and that's about 50 minutes into the podcast uh but like i said i was looking for someone to talk rugby with there's no one better uh than angus uh he's been involved with rugby his whole entire life he was a player um for many many years about he competitive games he played for about 10 years, which was about 300 games, which he'll get into. Uh, after that, he became a coach, um, then moved to Colorado and is now promoting rugby and directing rugby in Colorado, especially for young people. Um, I was introduced to him through my assistant principal who played for Angus. Uh, but then ever since then, everyone in my community who's involved with rugby, whether that be some of my middle school students or some of the parents um, of some of my students, like they all know Angus and he's, he's really trying to make an impact here. And I think he's doing a really good job at, at growing the sport in this state. So yeah, let's get into it. We'll talk all things rugby in this show. I'm super pumped. Uh, like I said at the end, we talk a little bit about the Gobi March stage race, um, which Angus Angus did uh, untrained. 
he didn't really go into it trained, uh, which is always an interesting experience. So, yeah, let's get into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 185 with Angus Peacock. All right, guys, this week I'm welcoming Angus Peacock to the show. Uh, Angus is the executive director of Rugby Colorado. And I got to say, man, I've been looking to do a rugby podcast, like talk about rugby for since I've started the show. So I'm so excited. Um, Angus is also the host of the Rugby Room podcast, which is awesome. Uh, I listened to it this morning while I was working out and absolutely loved it, man. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks for your kind words. And uh, happy to happy to deliver. I hope. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm like preaching to the choir here, but rugby's like legitimately the greatest sport in the history of all sports, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, without doubt. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you expect me to answer that in any other way, but yeah, I. I I think it's the ultimate team sport, absolutely. Um, so I've done endurance events, as, as we've discussed, um, on personal level, very enjoyable. But in terms of uh, team sports, I think it's the ultimate team sport. There's nothing like it. Yeah. What, yeah. in your opinion, like what makes it that way? Because I, I have the same, like I, I came to rugby, I was telling you a little bit, I came to rugby uh, my senior year of high school. So this is after playing football. It's after playing hockey and soccer as a kid and all these team sports. And all of a sudden I'm doing rugby and, and it just, I don't know, it just kind of like transformed what I thought about a team sport. Yeah. So as, as a player, if, if you like to be, um, doesn't matter what kind of athlete you are. And I mean, by whatever shape or size, yeah, it still holds true today, even in the professional game. There's there's a role for you on the field. Uh, rugby is multifaceted because a single player, you're not just playing by position. A single player can have multiple roles on the roles on the field, play offense and defense. Um, there's a, the contact side of the game, but it, it's a game of invasion and evasion. So there's something for everyone, and and. Um, you can be you know, a skinny, super fast, mercurial, uh, Hussein Bolt type of character and playing in the outside backs through to um, a decathlete or an endurance athlete type playing in, in, in the midfield and in what we call the back row all the way through to a physical, aggressive MMA type of character up front. So there, there really is something for everyone and then the other thing is no one player makes the team. All the roles are interdependent and rely on each other to be successful in the game. So you don't have a star quarterback, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You will have playmakers and leaders, but um, yeah, you, you don't have one star who, who's going to basically dictate how the game played is yeah. played because it's just not possible to achieve. Yeah, you have to have that like teamwork mentality or like everybody is has to be on the same page absolutely absolutely so what, what's interesting over here in the u.s what i've noticed when you look at um football a lot of people um talk say football and rugby are the same or similar there's similar characteristics but if you dig deep they're not the same football does have plays 
Um, but rugby is a bit like soccer has patterns and, yeah. and things evolve out of the patterns of play. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I remember as a kid, you know, being an American and honestly, like, I mean, we'll get into it, but rugby over here just, and I feel like it's probably gotten better since I've played, but maybe I'm just recognizing it more, but you know, it wasn't around when I was a kid, basically. And the way people described it, they started the game in my hometown, um, probably when I was sophomore in high school and people would describe it by saying it's soccer and football combined and i'm like i don't know if that necessarily does it justice <laughs> yeah it's, it's sort of but I, I get why people would say that because it's sort of um it, it sort of helps people visualize people like to visualize things so you you've got but yeah you're right that doesn't do it justice as a description yeah it's um what's what you've got going on is you've got some of the gladiatorial elements of football um intertwined with some of the skills elements of soccer um, and you definitely got got a, a a game that runs north south east west and all points of the compass across the field continuously but that it sort of stops there yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm gonna just rip off your podcast with this question because I was like, oh, that's a really good way of wording that. What what's your rugby pedigree? Like, what's your background in the sport? Like, how did you find it? Yeah, that's, well, because of my mum. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was, uh, you know, way back when in the seventies when I was a kiddo, uh, my my parents were all about. Uh, us going out and playing a sport so we outside of school we've got to have a hobby and we've got to have a sport that was for me and my brother and soccer was the big thing so the first few years of my life was spent on a soccer field um but i'm left-footed and left-handed and that doesn't back then it didn't really being left anything didn't really cut it with coaches teachers whatever um and while soccer was the game and it still is the biggest game in the uk it wasn't working for me, and I didn't enjoy it. And I'd stand in in goal, you know, freezing cold or bored, and just be a target of everyone's shots. And my mum just said, "Well, let's find you something else." And we went to a rugby club, and it wasn't so good. And then um, we tried that for a season, and then up the next season, she took me up the road to another one. And they were so welcoming. They just, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to have you. Rugby's awesome, and let's give it a go. And I never looked back. And I stayed there for 10 years. So that was from roughly age 7 or 8 to 18, played all the age grade. And at age 18, I went up to senior men's club rugby and played my first senior club game at the age of 18. What's, and, that, uh, what's that like, an 18-year-old going up to the men's team? So back then, it is, is massively exciting. So in, in, in England, you have, and I think New Zealand, Australia, you have this uh, age called Colts, which is like under 19. So at 17, 18, um, you're playing in the Colts. So that was exciting because that's your stepping stone to senior adult sports. Um, and you can still play some uh, senior men's club rugby in that at that age, but you'll play lower levels. So because it can get physically, you know, quite it could be, uh, Injury prone, dangerous. Don't think dangerous is the word. It's risk mitigation. So you yeah. don't go straight into top tier. There's always a stepping stone to top tier. 
so at that age, you're, you're just excited. The only thing you want to do as a competitive athlete is get into that first or second team and play senior club footy. You want to, and you're, in, you're going into the prime of your athletic life, but rugby's a game of experience. So you've got to know what you're doing. So it's super exciting. And then when that selection call comes, you go, holy cow. It's also the most frightening because you go, now I've got to, now that I've got to prove that I'm worthy of pulling on the jersey. Yeah. And I joke with people because my first game was just, that was pain, man. I was like, I, I've spent probably 60 of 80 minutes thinking, just don't cry. This is so painful. This is such a massive bridge. I want to get selected in games. So this, the, this will end eventually. It will end. Because men are tough, man. At 18, you think you're in the world. Mentally, physically, you think you're on top of the world. And you get into that environment, and they're just super tough, gnarly gladiators. And back then, they seriously are tough because there's a lot of people back then, blue-collar workers, they're physical workers, so people who work construction, farming. They're not just white-collar workers, all on the rugby field. All have come from very physical backgrounds. So when you get knocked over, you go down hard and you feel every every ounce, every pound of pressure going through your body. <laughs> Did you have, uh, like, is there a specific moment? I mean, the first game, but is there a specific moment that you remember from that first game that was like a coming of age moment where you're like, oh, this is like, these are full grown giant men that I'm playing against now. Yeah, the minute you walk onto the field. Because <laughs> you're all excited up until warm-up. Yeah. And you're in the change rooms, you go, oh, my God, I'm about to walk out in the field with this lot. This is real now. And I'm wearing, like, I'm in the starting lineup. I'm wearing that jersey. And, and it's just, yeah, I can remember the mixture of excitement and trepidation and fear and and but you don't think so much about skill sets because you've grown up in an environment where you've been playing this game, and you know back then because you've got infrastructure, people are very good at mentoring. They look after you, so they bring you up. So you get looked after in 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 the European club sports model. You get looked after by the people above you, which is sort of a model that doesn't really exist over here. Um, and therefore you're not going into an environment that's super unfamiliar. It's just faster and tougher. And so another coming of age moment was I'm out of breath because it's so flipping fast. I'm going, wow, I can't keep up. And then, you know, you're you're now you're no longer a kid. You're you're now in the men's game. You're now in senior game. And therefore, you know, you've got to step your game up and play. And um, you're still young enough to be fast enough and agile enough to move around some folks and get away from some of the harder contact sessions. Um, but eventually you're going to get caught and you just got to ride it out and rely on skills and what little knowledge you have to deal with the moment. Yeah. Yeah. What position were you? So I started in the front row. So that's numbers one, two, and three. No wonder um, you were in I, pain so much. <laughs> yeah, because I was in the scrum. And back then, there wasn't much in terms of refereeing and safety regulations. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot, a very physical game. And then I realized as, as I started growing, neck and body got longer. So I decided I wanted to move further back. So I put a bit of bulk on and then got a lot faster, did a lot of cross-country running, 
so I could get into the back row, six, seven, eight, which is like more of being like a decathlete. You, you're doing everything at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. are, what, are those the flanker positions? Yeah, that's it. And eight, so six, seven. So um, you call them six is your blind side flanker, seven's your open side flanker. So six is more physical, seven's more is faster. Okay. And you're there for offense and defense support roles. You're, you're the bridge. Um, between the forwards and the backs, and um, and uh, yeah, your sixes get a bit more aggressive, doing a lot more tackling, trying to steal the ball, and then just a transition ball transition player between forwards and backs in the offense. Seven's a lot faster. I was never going to be fast enough to play seven, but I was quite happy playing that role on number six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, how many games do you think you've played like in total in your career? Yeah, I worked that out. So let's say competitive games. So 18 to 28, so just over that 10-year stretch, um, I probably played uh, roughly 30 games a season. Wow. So it's about 300 games, not including sevens games or contact scrimmages. Um, yeah, so it'd be roughly, roughly 300 games over that period. And then... From age 15 to 18, would have played um, probably 15 because we played twice a week. We'd play at school and club. So probably, again, similar, you know, slightly shorter season, but you're still playing about 30 games to 40 games a season. Wow, man. That's that's so crazy. And I, I, I think if people haven't played rugby, they don't understand, like, your body does adapt to the constant uh, like pounding that it's taking. Um, you know what I mean? Like I, if I went out now having not played a game in five or six years, I wouldn't be able to walk for like three or four days afterwards probably. But like when you're in the middle of a season, like you're adapted to, you know, running into people and getting bumped up and like landing on the ground and all that stuff. But yeah. that being said, 30 games is crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I do look at that and I know the season in the UK is still around. Now you look at the top tier players, they're playing a 30 to 40 game season, whether they're playing premiership and or international. So it's similar. It's just the intensity that changes. Uh, but to your point, uh, you you become. I remember as a kid, you know, as younger, you get knocked down. You, it gets really hard and it hurts. But by the time I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, it was. You just feel like you're on fire, you know. And you you do you your those um those knockdowns or those um, encounters on the field, whether it's run, catch, pass, or contact, they become like battle scars that you're proud of. And it really is like the art of war at times, rugby in that sense. And it's um, you do become conditioned. You can't create rugby players in a gym. They have to because it's an experience-based game. You have to get game minutes. Yeah, You really yeah. do. And, and game minutes go a long way to conditioning. And uh, it's just like boxers. You know, you can train in the gym, but ultimately you're going to have to have a fight in the ring at some point. And rugby's quite gladiatorial in that sense. You've got to step out there and and roll with it and develop your own skills and agility and develop your own player profile that can match whatever kind of game you're in. Um, 
I was never going to be sprint fast, but I had very good endurance. So there was, um, yeah, it was a very high probability I was going to always be playing sort of the contact game. Um, and I did actually calculate, funny, because now I do coach education now in because I'm doing governance here in the US. I look at the contact game very closely. And I calculated in that 10-year career, I probably um, took uh, or my body sustained, whether through delivery or receiving, somewhere in the region of 60,000 contacts. <laughs> That's, I mean, are you, like, do you feel it now? Like, I, I guess because the, the classic image of, like, a even like an old football player, hockey player or something is that they're all beat up and things like that. Do you feel that way right now or do you feel like, I went through all these contacts, but I'm actually like doing pretty okay. So <clears throat> I'm doing okay. And I had an MRI and a CAT scan recently just because I wanted to make sure my head was all right because yeah. I did worry. But yeah, I got the all clear. And um, I worked really, really hard on my own conditioning because, you know, I did a lot of gym work, but I did to what I found the most successful swimming, cross-country running, um, things that develop tendon ligament strength are really important, which you don't get in straight up and down gym work. Um, I did, um, yeah, I played other sports, played soccer, played cricket, did track and field. So it's quite athletic as in high school because we were encouraged to do it back then. So all that yeah. stuff helps. Yeah. Um, the gym work gives you muscle mass, but you know, you see a lot of what I call gym monkeys. They get too much muscle. And then the muscle is one thing, but all those bone density and tendon ligament strengths really important and flexibility as well. So because I looked after myself, whilst I had some injuries, there's players out there who didn't look after themselves and their bodies are a lot more problematic. Um, one of the reasons I stopped playing is I always had this personal objective that when I reach my 40s, which is where I am now, I want to be able to still climb a hill, play a game of golf, go for a swim, walk the dog without being in pain or having to take tablets. And that was my personal contract with myself, if you like. So I've, I've got a few, you know, back problems, a couple of deformed discs in my spine um, from overuse and overzealous rugby. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, subsequent to rugby, I did go and do other endurance events. So I'm doing all right. I can't complain. Yeah. My yeah, biggest yeah, challenge yeah. is weight loss. <laughs> um, can you kind of like just what are some of the highs of your experience, like your career playing and then uh, maybe some lows in there as well? Like what were the big peaks and valleys of your of your rugby career? Um, <clears throat> so the highs were and when I was in the military, so I, I joined the Royal Navy and that extended my playing career. And by the end of my, and I didn't stay too long, but by the end of my playing career, I was the sought after number eight for the Royal Navy. So I represented the Royal Navy uh, overseas. I didn't get a full Navy cap because my my uh, career ended just before I was due to be selected to represent the Royal Navy at Twickenham in London. Um, and um, so that was a bit of a high and a low, but with yeah. the, I played... And I played against the Polish national team, the Dutch national champions, played in Canada, played in South America, played in the US, 
uh, played in France. Um, I've played with and against teams um, or players rather from all over the world. Name a country. I've probably played rugby with a player from that country. So it's a massive high. Um, my first or one of my first overseas travel opportunities was because of rugby, going to a trip to Paris. I uh, played in the Middle East when I was in the Navy down there. played in every country on the left bank of the Arabian Gulf, not the right bank, <laughs> which is Bahrain, Dubai, uh, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. So, um, yeah, I'm those absolute massive highs. And um, as a player, you know, playing in those positions, I ultimately, for a while, I was penciled into the in number one or one of the first few names on a roster for a good period of my playing career, which is uh, a ton of fun. And, and also I got approached and uh, went to professional team tryouts um, up in Leeds, which is a rugby league team up in England at the time. So I got invited to a player camp up there back in the day. Um, and, and I think, so those are the real highs. Yeah. So the travel, meeting people around the world, playing all around the world, playing the positions I wanted to play. And in a couple of lows where inadvertently I turned down options to go and play for teams that are now in the premiership. Because <laughs> <laughs> so like, I didn't know. I, I didn't yeah. have any – I had no mentors, no male mentors in my life, no coach mentors or life mentors. And, and there's a team called uh, – Sale and there's a team called Saracens that uh, were in up until uh, very recently. They were in the, well, they still are in the English Premiership, and that was at the early days of professionalism. And uh, I was given an option to go to both of those, and also an option to go up to Newcastle, which is another Premiership team that's now in the Championship. And I didn't know. I you know, talk about naive. You look back and coming back to an earlier question. At the age of 18, 19, 20, you think you know everything. And I didn't. I didn't know yeah. anything. So I just went, oh, I'm really happy here. I like what I'm doing. So I never went. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, so, but you've successfully turned rugby into a career at this point. So um, one of the reasons I stopped playing, apart from personal physical welfare, was I knew there'd be a time where you've got to, I go back to school, get a proper job. So the Navy helped with all that. It was a good transition point. Um, then I left the Navy, went to college, did a degree. And uh, when I was at university, just said, right, time time done. So because the game had gone professional, I decided I wouldn't have any professional life in rugby. So I went into business and then fast forward to 2009, I was in Shanghai in China and was approached to become the head coach and subsequently director of rugby, director of coaching for Shanghai Rugby Club. And that's where my professional career started. Why, um, why were you approached? That's a good question, because I kept asking them that. Why me? Surely you've got the <laughs> options. <laughs> Apparently I had a reputation. People thought I'd be a good option. I, I, I don't know why. Um, but I took up the head coach role, and within a year had taken that team it was sevens rugby then, so we we won um, a bunch of sevens and tens tournaments around Asia. But when we got into the final of the Asian sevens series against the Chinese Olympic team and uh, we won it, that sort of 
was the start of my coaching career, which was exciting. And um, and because Shanghai was a big expat enclave then, there was a bit of money to build the rugby organisation, which he subsequently discovered had a history going back to, I think, 1873. And um, I went, yeah, I got paid to be a sports coach and a sports executive. And it, was, it was really cool. That's so, like, you went from not coaching at all to all of a sudden just beating the national team in your first year. So what kind of lessons and takeaways and experiences did you have during that, like, very first experience of of being a coach? So uh, it was a bit difficult at first because... I don't buy into sports politics, and, and there's a lot of sports politics around. I basically said, you either want me to do it or you don't, and if you do want me to do it, then I'll give it my all. I'll, I'll spend the hours to putting together a proper regime for the players. Um, but I'm quite competitive, so the players who come on board have also got to want to be competitive. We're all – we've all got um, – at that time, we've all got other jobs to do. We've all got other lives. So the players have to commit it. I don't just want this to be an expat drinking club. Yeah. yeah. And they said, yep, absolutely. What do you need? And I said, training, field space, playing space. And then we had a few games. And culturally, you know, you've still got you've got driven, motivated people because the expat community in Shanghai is ambitious professionally. You know, and the players were out of New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, England, Wales, Scotland, France, Chile, Argentina, right? These are serious people who've transitioned all the way around the world for a career. So they're going to be motivated and they're going to be ambitious. So again, it's that first, I step out on the field and my first thing was trepidation. I've been out of the rugby for a few years and these guys have all played national standard or semi-pro or academy standard in their respective home countries, this is going to be a real challenge. I need to up my game. I need to be super professional. Otherwise, I'm going to lose them. But, you know, mentally and emotionally, I'll lose them really quickly. So I set a culture of openness, and I made it very clear, this is the kind of person I am, and this is what I will deliver, but this is what I expect. And we had a few bumps in the road, and then we, we were playing 15s and 10s, and there was a little bit of a, a culture clash. And I said, look, I'm getting a bit bored, actually. And um, we, we've got the seven series around the corner. And you all claim that you're top-level rugby players from your own countries. And they said, yes. And I said, I will give up my summer holiday. And because expats back then would, would disappear. They'd go away for you know, three, four weeks of summer vacation and back to the motherland. Um, and so I so said, I will give up my summer vacation and we will set out to win the Shanghai Sevens. And and I said, but I'll do that if you'll do that. And I'll set it up. And I said, because you're either on or you're off the bus at this stage. It was a bit of a crossroads. And that was our first year. And um, so we had two and a half months to prepare. And the players bought into it. And I said, but I will push you through the hardest physical conditioning experience you've ever done. And they stepped up and we did it. We trained three or four times a week. And we walked into that tournament as this sort of perceived expat drinking group. And it's a two-day tournament, and we won every game six or seven nothing on the way into the final. And we won the final 3-2 to 
against and it wasn't it wasn't the full national team it was the development squad it, so they were playing under in not in disguise that's not the right phrase but they weren't yeah. playing in yeah. a national outfit but we knew who they were and we beat them 3-2 in the final that's that's, that's so that's awesome well so when you have so the, you mentioned the the companionship of rugby and <coughs> the fact that it's a world sport and i just want to know like when you have multinational players who are all from different parts of the world and different cultures is it difficult to get them to mesh or is rugby just like the common language between everybody yeah it's a really good question it's difficult to get them to mesh yeah so rugby is the common language they're all there for the rugby but you have to respect everyone's culture and and we had a team there we had I have many nationalities I just mentioned, but the team I was coaching, there was three native mother tongues, Spanish, French, English, and then multiple variations of English from Africana English to English English via the Canadians, Americans, uh, Australians, and New Zealanders on the team. So it's it was a real test of human resource management. Because I had to, and I think coaches oftentimes make mistakes when they put themselves in front and centre as the most important piece of the jigsaw. My initial, and I used to talk about this with my wife at the time, if I do step out of line left or right two or three you know, points on the compass, I could potentially alienate 10 to 20% of my team. Yeah. And so it's very conscious of language, how I spoke, what I said, made sure the environment's inclusive. So there was no nationality division, no exclusion zones. If you need an interpreter because you don't understand me, we'll find an interpreter, a Spanish interpreter, a French interpreter. You know, we'll do this to make sure this is an inclusive family environment. I said, but the one thing I believe in is family. And you're the athletes and you're the shop window for our club and our team. But everyone's wife, girlfriend, mother, sister, brother, grandma, auntie, uncle gets the same rights. Everyone gets access to this space. There's no exclusion zones. Don't care what creed, colour, faith you are. We're all part of the same big happy family. And it and it worked. But I had to walk that walk. I couldn't just say that. That was my philosophy and I had to walk that walk. Yeah. And that, that, was probably that, is, big, that was a big challenge. Is that how you get the buy-in? You know, I, I teach a leadership class at my school and what you just described and the situation you were you were in in that in that uh, instance is just like that's like a challenge for, you know, like an expert leader and to be a new coach and to be able to handle that. Like, I just think that's pretty incredible. Well, I was lucky because I had life experience. And I'll be honest, you know, whilst I didn't have the sports coaching pedigree, I had the uh, Royal Navy. I was at Naval College, and my eyes, like, the scale, using a biblical phrase, the scales fell off my eyes when I was at Naval College on what leadership's all about and what it can be, good and bad. And I wanted to be that good leader. And so having left Naval College, even when I went back to university, any job or role I was in from – part-time roles that I was doing at university through to full employment contracts was was heavily influenced by military college and 
And so a lot of those skill sets were evolved over the time. So by the time I got into this coaching role, I was fairly comfortable at being a leader. Yeah. So what yeah. I needed to do was upskill on rugby knowledge, rugby IQ and things like that. Gotcha. Well, so what eventually brings you to the United States? My wife. Yeah. She's laughing in the background here. She's got bright red and she's sniggering. So she was she um from New Mexico, grew up in Santa Barbara, and we met in Nanjing in China. We arrived ten days apart in two thousand and two from two different countries. And roughly three years later started dating and then three years after that got married. And um by the time 2014 arrives, we've been in China for 12 years, both of us. And it was that was at a time when, and we've still got friends over there, but for us, China was under new leadership, was getting a little bit uh, nationalistic, and it wasn't quite the same place that we'd moved into, so we decided it was time to pack up and leave. And uh, a little game of rock, paper, scissors around where do you go from here, um she wins <laughs> so here we are back in the u.s so we had we had to rebuild and we, we basically just packed our bags and said you know what time is done it was a little bit naive i think and um and a lot of passion a lot we, we drive things with a lot of passion and sometimes don't really think through the logistics <laughs> um but yeah we suddenly said yep and we're out and we moved almost wasn't quite overnight it was a three four month transition and uh, we did a fast exit and came over here yeah, what made did you immediately like go into rugby over here as well? Um, or did, yeah, I did. Okay, I, I, I and it was tough for both of us. And and big kudos to to her. She she got job first to help whilst I was here, and I just started coaching, and just went and volunteered at a local college and uh, just helped out. And then, you know, we got a lead. I yeah, coming back to the rugby network, we got a lead onto a team and, and they offered to bring me up to Colorado and I said well I'd only come if you look after my wife because she supports the rugby and so they got her a job and so we moved up and I started coaching and then off there I got approached by Rugby Colorado after one year as the governing body for youth and high school and yeah so I, I, I wanted to continue my rugby career and I wanted to be of benefit to the US yeah yeah. Which I think I I think I am adding value to the system. <laughs> uh, I hope so. Anyway, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to see you. I, I love player development as a coach. You know, I, I sometimes get overly ambitious and want to get into back into professional coaching, but I never wanted to be a head coach of a professional franchise. I enjoy player development. So the next year, get them right up to the edge of international standards or national standards and then hand them off to someone else. So that's the niche where I'd like to be. Yeah. 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 Well, so yeah. when you got here, what was the perception of rugby in the United States uh, that you had? Because, you know, traveling all over the world, you know, visiting many, many different rugby cultures. And now you're in the United States, which notoriously it's not as strong as other parts of the world but what what was your perception there so there's no reason why it shouldn't be i know that's the craziest thing it blows yeah. my mind <laughs> yeah and i i'd had a couple of yellow flags i'll be honest from friends who'd been over here but the external the world perception of of u.s rugby 
is the sleeping giant. And my perception is, yeah, and it's in a very deep sleep. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and, and I think, coming back to highs and lows, there's some phenomenal athletes here who really want to be good rugby players. And, and I think the low is the desire, the, the curiosity, and, and, and um, hopes of the standard American rugby athlete, male and female, has already outstripped the abilities and knowledge of the coaches here. And I think that's a big challenge, to be honest. I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And we've got MLR, Major League Rugby, that's, that's in its third season. So let's hope that sustains. Um, and we've got, and the women's national team's doing pretty well on the World Cup circuit and on the sevens circuit. Both men's and women's national teams are doing well. But those, in very simple terms, are driven by the passion of the people who are driving them. There isn't a sustained infrastructure like you'll see in New Zealand and England and South Africa. Those three countries have probably got those, the most well-sustained infrastructures to support their national setup. Yeah. Is that what you're kind of trying to bring? Because I just noticed you you do a lot with uh, youth rugby um, in Colorado. So you do a lot of the the high school programs and things like that. Is that something that you're kind of like – trying to help build yeah absolutely so i was blessed with the directors board of directors at rugby colorado you know which was they give me carte blanche to make executive decisions but they sort of also respect my professional background so it's mutually respectful environment which is which is essential which has helped me to shape up um rugby at high school and age grade level and get us onto a, a tier one footing in terms of what we're playing and how we're playing it and make sure our players are playing appropriate level of competition. Yeah. And it's yeah. taken four years to get here. Um, what the next chapter looks like next four years is hard to say because um, we rugby's a niche market sport. So if you look at that as, as a business, boutique niche market businesses charge boutique niche market prices rugby's a boutique sport that charges bargain bucket bargain bucket prices um and so that, that's a real socio-economic challenge because as in my role as ceo i want rugby to be accessible cost wise so we have to keep that cost down in, in where it needs to be so, it, so it's accessible for the kids and we're always looking for ways to open doors to keep it accessible for the young folks um, but equally you've got to find you've got to build your infrastructure somewhere and you've got to find funding somewhere to grow to maintain leagues to train referees yeah uh, and all that kind of stuff that's essential um, but yeah it's been a it's been a labor of love at sometimes. And we've had some great success. And as a as a governing body, we want to be in the top three in the country. And I think we're up there right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, so can you like take a second, like pitch the sport to either parents or if someone's out there listening and and they're they want to play rugby, like pitch the sport to them. Like why is it? Because let me just tell you just a real quick story and. I was trying not to like, I don't want to go into like my rugby experience too much because you obviously have like an amazing, incredible story. But my very first practice 
we tackled, right? Like we were doing yep. rugby tackling and stuff. And I come, I hit my nose and I bleed like all over my shirt. And I show up at my girlfriend's house after the, after the practice, uh, who's now my wife. And so she remembers this and I'm covered in my own blood and she's just looking at me like I'm a crazy person. And I'm like, this is the greatest sport I've ever played in my whole entire life. And like instantly fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a good pitch to parents. Cause they're like, I don't want my kid, you know, bleeding everywhere, but, <laughs> but like, what is no, it about the sport? And let me also say this. I never got injured. I never had a serious injury or anything like that from rugby. Whereas in football and all the other yeah. like hockey and stuff, like I did have like big time injuries. So I'm going to, I think I this isn't going to sound like an elevator pitch because okay. there's too many thoughts there. It's going to be a little bit layered. Okay. Um, and um, so number one, it's the game of life. You're going to get knocked down and you're going to get back up and you're going to keep going. Right, so number one, out and out, it's the game of life. Um, number two, it, as an educational tool beyond the game of life, it teaches you not just sports-related skills and agility. It, the game also evolves things like executive functioning, which you don't get in, much in schools these days. So you're making decisions, you're developing executive functioning ability and the like of which you don't get in school and in a lot of your adult professional career. And you're developing emotional uh, management tools and also social interaction because things like sharing and problem solving are all part of the game. It's just done under pressure. Yeah. And, and you know, number three is, yes, you, there is contact, but it's not the only thing and it's not the primary thing and sometimes people focus on the contact piece because they don't necessarily know what they're looking for in the game, and the game's got so much more on offer. It's entertaining, it's fast, it's furious, and it is physical. Um, but to your point, for the athletes, and I've met male and female athletes who just love that piece. I got knocked down and I got bloody nose and a black eye. And, and, and it, it, I just, it's... it's um, there's something visceral but rewarding about coming out the other side of that. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, I can survive. I am tough. I'm, it's good for self-esteem. And uh, you see a lot of, in the modern world with mental health issues, there's a lot of articles out there why your daughter or son should play rugby. And it gives you that confidence and self-esteem that you might not get in other walks of life. Yeah. And yeah. I know from just speaking from my experience, I was a hyper frustrated like teenager and I needed contact sports just to like have a healthy outlet to get some of that energy out, you know? And right now I'm a middle school teacher and I see uh, some of the kids around just like, oh, you just need an outlet. You need to like be able to go through your day and have that willpower to like keep everything together. And then at night, like go to some sort of sport and just like let all your energy out, just let it out and, and, you know, do it in a healthy, in a healthy yeah. way. Well, I think to that point, one of the most important roles of a coach today is to let kids play. And I, I'm, I'm on my mother's side, I'm Finnish. And so the Finnish education system is, it, it evolves all those soft skills that we talked about just now. And, um, 
Yeah, I've seen it in China and the US, very rigid school environment. Kids don't know how to play anymore. And and, and just let the kids play, man. Yeah. You get yeah. them out in a, in a safe space and give them some simple game-based objectives and let them work it out. And a phrase I learned over here, and I'd never heard it before, was the school-to-prison pipeline. And it, I would think, looking back at myself as a wayward teenager, I was very much on that pipeline because of family, family issues, dysfunctional family, couldn't find my way in the world. And rugby was the thing that kept me off, out of that pipeline. And I just shared with you, I went from rugby to job, white-collar job, Navy, Naval College, university, and rugby was the backbone. And I think that's for me as the biggest sell. It was the thread that gave me the tenacity and the ability to deliver on all those other points in my life. Yeah. Through yeah. to a successful, stable marriage. <laughs> his wife, his wife is also in the room with him, so I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing because uh, <laughs> saying that was uh, giving me the stare. You're like giving her the side eye, like uh, we we could. <laughs> um, I would definitely regret not asking you about the Gobi March. So let's kind of like completely transition. It's great. It like. That's the thing too, uh, you know, because like I've said, I I was in team sports my whole life, and now I'm more focused on like ultra marathons, endurance things, and things like that. Um, yeah. And there's there's lessons to be learned in the team aspect, and then there's lessons to be learned when you're just out there by yourself, digging deep with no one cheering you on, just you and your your own brain. And you mentioned before we started recording, you did the Gobi March, which correct yep. me if I'm wrong, is a six day stage race, like yep. 155 miles through the Gobi desert. And yep. you did it uh, on no training, no training routine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why, what, what, why would you do that? <laughs> Jeez, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I've got, as you hear, quite a strong athletic pedigree. And after doing all the military, athlete, military, then get a proper job in my early, early 30s, go, man, I'm not, I'm not ready to stop being an athlete. Yeah. So I want more. I've got more to give. And so I started doing um, triathlons and marathons, half marathons, get, and just, just doing crazy hikes out. You know, and I did one up in the Alps in France. Just stuff that would get me out. But being out in nature is fundamentally, spiritually very important for me. And we we had a good life, and we're doing great. I mean, Shanghai was like adult Disneyland, man. There was restaurants. It was the fashion center of the world for a while. All these icons moving their business there. It's up and coming place. But the sports piece had gone missing. And being a white-collar worker, and I put on a bit of weight, and um, I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm just frustrated. I, I want to get – there's something missing, you know? So a friend of mine said – or a couple of friends of mine, we're all of a similar age, late 30s, getting on for 40s. Most of them, um, what do they call them, mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra, right? The guys who are on the, on, doing all the cycling events. There's no way on God's green earth was I going to look like that, dress like that. It's just my ego is not going to cope with any of that imagery. And <laughs> I used to go off do a bit of jogging with a friend of mine, Colin, and we'd go run around the tea plantations and stuff like that. 
and they all said, let's do the go. It's like we all had this collective male menopause, midlife crisis, crossroads turn up at the same time. And we all just said, yeah, let's do it. And I went, yep, fine. I mean, it's $3,500 of pain, basically. <laughs> I'm up for that. And my wife's going, Marissa's going, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? And I said, easy. Ego. And I just need to go and do something to see if I can do it. Yeah. Was, and was I'm there... not going to shed the weight. There's no way because work life is so busy. I'm like – 50, 60 hour weeks, I just know I'm not going to get into a training regime. Regime, It's just all over the place. So what I'm going to do is make this a complete exercise in mental toughness. Yeah. Was it a little bit of, because I, I have this every so often where I'm like, man, look where I like, I live in a house where I can control the temperature. I yep. can basically order any type of food I want right now. Yeah. From yep. my house. And not only that, but they'll actually deliver it to me. And yes. like, I just live this, like there's this option to live this life of complete comfort. And <laughs> there's just something that I feel like I miss out on if every so often I don't go out and like have this crazy adventure. Like I just yep. need to get out there and actually experience it. Cause it brings me back to kind of reality and you say like signing up for your ego, but I also think it's like, I need to sign up to prevent my ego from just completely taking over. I think, I think that's valid. And also, uh, um, I think that's valid. And also it's, um, just a spiritual piece. Yeah. I love being in nature and I wanted to get out there and, I love trees, I love bushes, I love plants, I love animals. And getting away from the city is so important. Yeah. And having a mental reset and an emotional reset, and that's a way, that was a way to do it. Slightly extreme way, I admit. Well, so beyond just like not having the time to really get the necessary training in, was there another reason? Like, did you intentionally like want to go just see if you could get it done? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought, I've got this old knowledge from the military. I've been out. I've been out in the bush a few times. Yeah, I've been in scuba diving. I've got all my licenses there. I've done all my, a lot of my coach accreditations. I've been in tough environments, and I'd survived. So I, I had logistics knowledge, personal management knowledge, you know, survival knowledge. And I thought, you know, you're pushing the boundaries of your ability, but these folks setting up this event, they're not, in my mind, they're not going to let you die. You're not going to fall off a cliff. Whilst it's in an extreme environment, it's also managed. Yeah. So it's, it's a risk mitigation exercise. So I said, I know I'm not going to be in the top one third anyway because this is an event that the world's top endurance athletes are running. I'm never going to get there. These guys are in their 20s and early 30s. So let's set myself realistic targets, which is get through each day and complete it get some photos, enjoy extremes of nature because I might never get back here ever again. And so I'm going to go at slow speed because I want to score as many memories into my brain as I can because who knows what's coming around the corner. So it was, it was a slightly different approach management-wise. Was there any point during the race where you're like, I made a huge mistake, I should have trained? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> and like every race, even if you had trained though, there's that point in the race anyways where you're like, oh man, I made a huge mistake. Why did I sign up for this? And then 
you have to like dig yourself out of that hole, that mental hole. Yeah. So I, I don't ever think I felt like I'd made a mistake because I, I was a, this sort of mental determination. I can do this and stick it on a backpack. And it's my, so my, my, my mantra was you're just going for a walk every day because I got a backpack, got about you know 10 kgs, it's 22 pounds roughly backpack. That's all my survival gear for the week because you have to carry your own stuff. I know how to get to water stops. So I know I'm not having to make my own water, so that's doable. So get the right footwear and just plow through it and just accept the fact it's going to be really, really hot. So it was tough and it got really tough. And so I underestimated the accumulation of weight through my knees and ankles over time. But I got quite a high pain threshold and, and my feet were in bits, blisters on blisters. And because the the sand and then you got damp and we had extremes like the first couple of nights got really cold. You had a frost on the ground and then all the way through to the Turpan Basin, which is about 40 meters below sea level. So you're in salt flats and you can barely breathe and you can also almost taste the air. Um, so those points were tough and it's just, it was just mental toughness. And I, and I, I just like hum music in my head, listen to old madness songs uh and and just enjoy the ride and just go this is but in your darkest moment is i was just saying this is a basic human concept one foot in front of the other we just walk all i'm doing is walking and so um the the, the salt flats the turpan basin was tough because there's just no water but the, the one time where i thought shit oh sorry um, uh, where, where, I thought, <laughs> where i thought man this is real is I went into a part of the desert and we're at over 60 degrees Celsius. So it's around 130, 140 Fahrenheit. And and I'm on my own, but I know where I'm going. And I come out the other side and everyone's freaking out. My God, what's, where you been? I've been, guys, I've been doing this for three, four days. We're all in the same group. You know my modus operandi. I'm all right. I'm just plodding through. And, and, Mate, it was like being in an oven. We were in the bottom of these trenches, and I could feel like my brain cooking. I've never experienced like it, and and most people and everyone had trouble going through this part because it was like Lawrence of Arabia. It's this red, hard baked sand. We'd been on the road for hours. I'd been on the road for an hour or two hours before going into this piece, and it's just like hell's kitchen. Absolutely, Hell's Kitchen without Gordon Ramsay swearing at you. And and I come out the other side and I'm going, yeah, whatever, guys. Trying to be all too cool for school. The sad thing was the guy and I, I was coming through there going, man, I'm, I might have bitten off more than I can chew. This is fundamentally seriously tough. Yeah. And I'm really yeah. worried I'm not going to come through the other side. And it turned out the guy in front of me took a wrong turn and, and dropped dead and they found him dead in a gully. Um, <sighs> So that was uh, that was a moment of reflection. <laughs> yeah, holy crap, man! How do you like? What does that do to you mentally in the middle of this? I mean, and what does it do to the camp? Oh, the camp was in bits. Yeah, the camp was in bits. There was all of us who were ex-military, going um, railing at the the organisers and the doctors. Everyone else who was who'd never been through the military or that kind of experience. All the civilians were just freaking out. They were in bits. They were so traumatized. It was like this massive escalation of emotions. 
at the same time, I'm popping bloody, you know, elephant grade ibuprofen just to bloody get the pain out of my knees and back and joints. So I'm on this cocktail of ibuprofen trying to process that I was like, you know, a feather length away from probably dropping dead and the guy before me did. And and, and everyone's saying, you're right. I'm saying, I just need some water and a bit of food and a lie down. And I'll be honest, that was my emotional reaction to just get away from the high emotion because I couldn't process what everyone else was going through. Um, And some of them, and you know, you saw ranges of complete and utter despair through to absolute anger. And uh, just for me, as a case, I got to get out here and just go and meditate in a corner. And that stayed with everyone for the next few days. Even the camp organizers, uh, the race organizers, they'd never, they'd never dealt with anything like that. That was just a huge, and we're in the western part of China, miles from anywhere. There's no medivac uh, facility. And um, if you need a helicopter to get out, you're relying on the army to show up. Um, so it was a bit of a bit of a leveler, and you see the tr- the true fundaments of human nature in in those moments. Yeah, and then you have to keep going, right? Like, I mean, they didn't the race didn't stop. Yeah, I think that was day three. So then we had to go through the Turpan Basin, which was the uh, that was a hundred miler. I think day four, and then day five and six were shorter versions. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that you've got to get through some really grueling stages, and my um, testimony to everyone is that's what they did. We, we're here to compete. We're here to get on with it, and we're going to finish it. Yeah. Um, and the reality sinks in because initially you've got emotional reactions around, "I want to get out of here. I'm done." But then you realise you can't get out of it. Yeah. Because where are you going to go? You, the only way out is to finish the race and stay on camp and stay with your fellow competitors because you're not getting out other than at the finish point where everyone's got a collective um there's a collection point and you've got food and buses and you know i I, on the last day i bloody helped this guy i watched one of the competitors collapse and start vomiting up whatever and i had to stop and help them and and just sort of I wouldn't say I saved the guy's life, but I was instrumental in making sure he finished. And, and then I plodded over the line, and and there was my wife going, "What, what on earth are you doing?" I went, "Well, I'm just finishing the race." She said, "We, everyone knows in the whole world that someone died, and I, I'm looking for you, and I can't find you in the pack, and I can't find you on social media, and I spent 48 hours thinking, is it you?" And I go, "No, I'm alright." And she was absolutely crazy at me. Um, wow. Yeah. That's, that's, would you ever, I mean, have you done anything like that since? And would you ever like do something again, you know? Yes. And yes, I've done lightweight stuff. So I quite, yeah, I'm at a space in my life where I'm happy to go out for, I did leadership group exercises where I take people out for two or three days in the bush and no cell phone. So digital detox. Starbucks detox, all the detox from all the things we plug ourselves into. So I've done two or three days here and there. Um, and I'd do it again. I'd go out again on my own because I love it. i just got to find um, the space in my life. Would I do another five, six-day stage race? I don't know, to be honest, because um, I, I start questioning myself too much. So back then, it was just all about, as I said, emotional and 
emotional and mental toughness and can I do it and can I be that hard guy you're going to see in the movie kind of thing and I was going yeah I came out the other side but then you get to an age where you go why why and when you start saying why why am I doing this and you start questioning your motivations then then you're going to be a danger to yourself and or someone else yeah well then you're out there in the toughest part of the race and all of a sudden that little voice comes in the back of your head like why are you out here and then it's harder and harder to shut that thing off. I have to imagine. Yeah. And I've, I've disappeared off into the Alps and I've done a couple of treks up here in the Rocky mountains and disappeared into the forests in Finland a couple of times. And, you know, I like the idea of going for a day, 24 hours, yeah. 36 hours. You can completely unplug and just go, man, this is really cool. Or taking a barge down the river in France. You know, some of those uh, rivers in France are huge. So you sit on a small barge or a small boat, and you completely unplug, and there's nothing there. And so there's, I suppose I'm looking for more genteel ways of getting the same kick yeah. without yeah. necessarily having that young buck testosterone-driven approach to I've got to prove for life or prove something for myself. Yeah. yeah but, yeah, yeah it's, it never goes away, mate. How old are you now? Uh, I'm 33. Yeah, it doesn't go away. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I'm 15 years older than you, and it doesn't go away. I'm going to play just... that part of the podcast to my wife that it doesn't go away. Yeah, she list... <laughs> in the interest of transparency, just let her know what she's in for. Just so you know. <laughs> just so you know. But for me, like, I mean, I don't know. And I think part of it is the whole thing you're just talking about, like the unplugging and just breaking it from routine. <laughs> And like almost finding like a more simplistic, you know, I'm like a dad, a teacher, you know, a husband, like all of those aspects of life involve so much. But then you go out into the wilderness and you're like, oh, I just got to walk for a while and like eat food and stuff. Like that's way more simple. Um, I don't have to check my phone. Like, I don't know. It's just there's something to that experience that I think I draw a lot of things from. So it's nice to hear like you can get that in in many different forms. Yeah, I think so. And I think if it's what you need, it's really important to respect it because if you don't, it, it just erodes your, your your emotions and your spirituality. Yeah. And um, it's uh, – and I would now if, – if, you know, we've been on parts of New Zealand, down in Cornwall in the west of the UK. I would jump out the flipping car. I'd grab my backpack – and a litre of water, and I just would jump out of the car and roll into a ditch and go, right, I'm going to walk over that way, and um, I'll see you on the other side. And she'd go, why? It's just because it's there. I just want to disappear into the bush and just see what's out there. Yeah. And uh, I'll see you in about – you can go and find a shop or a wine bar or whatever, you know, cooks your goose, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> And yeah. there's nothing, and, and some of that is, I think, is your inner kid as well, because there's nothing more thrilling at times just being covered in mud and undergrowth and and and, and hurting and then going, man, that is so awesome. What an awesome feeling. Yeah. No, that's that's a great, that's a, that's a really good place to kind of wrap up the show. So Angus, first of all, I could talk to you for hours and hours. So thank you for so much for, for spending an hour with me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show and uh, and allowing me to share some of the experience. Yeah, really man. appreciate it.
Yeah, well, so I I definitely want to tune in to more episodes of of your podcast. So where can people kind of like find that and and maybe even more information, like if they're in Colorado uh, uh, for Rugby Colorado and things like that? So the Rugby Room um, has a YouTube channel. So we're we're broadcasting our third episode live this Sunday at uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Time at McMullen's Irish Pub in denver okay um but after the live broadcast i put it out on podbean so there's a podcast i'm new to the podcast game so i'm learning so you can find the rugby room on podbean and uh the youtube channel is also the rugby room you can find it there as well or you can go onto the mick mullins facebook page um and also the rugby room is on the on facebook and you can find episodes there Awesome. I'll, I'll make sure to link all that stuff uh, when I put this episode out. Oh, that's kind of you. That's, that's, um, and the purpose of that is, um, again, it's an opportunity to educate. It's, uh, it's rugby, rugby by veterans of rugby and veterans in rugby. That's our little um, mantra discussing the business of rugby. And it's just there to just educate. American marketplace what is rugby what is this game that's going on in your backyard that's run by all these crazy passionate people yeah and yeah. try and deliver yeah. some intellectual subject matter a bit of history a bit of culture and a bit of uh, what what goes on on the field no it's really cool you the episode I listened to was about how the uh, the relationship between the military and rugby as a sport and I thought it was cool and you had some really awesome guests to kind of like pick the brains of um, and hear about their experiences as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it's, and I've, I've got a few more around the corner, so thank you. And, but this week I'm excited because we've actually got the CEO of USA Rugby, which is the national governing body of wow. the sport. That's awesome. Ross Young. Yeah. I have my third show. I feel really chuffed. So he's coming on this week. Nice, nice. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely check that out. And uh, I would love to have you back on the show at any point you uh, you want to talk some more rugby. So, Yep. Let's, uh, stay tuned. And maybe towards uh, the end of spring, beginning of summer, we can get on and talk about the Major League Rugby or something like that. That would be cool. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Take care. All right. See you, Angus. All right, guys, that does it for this week's Like a Bigfoot podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Angus, thanks for coming on the show. Like I said, I really I really appreciated it, but it was also just relief to talk rugby. Um, right now, every single week on Fridays, we have club day at my school, quote unquote. And my club for the last three years has been Touch Rugby. Uh, with a bunch of seventh graders who have never ever ever played rugby before and they get the ball and they look at it and they're like why does this football look weird and I'm like it's not a football man um, <laughs> and we'll go out and we'll play a couple touch games for you know for 35 minutes or so and then the, their other reaction because they're 13 year olds is can we just tackle each other? Can we just run into each other? And I'm like, oh man, I wish. But uh, <laughs> but for me to be able to do this at our school right now as a club thing, uh, it's got to be touched. But so I love that. It does kind of, you know, it does give me a little bit of that that rugby taste every single week, which is great. But uh, but I miss it. I miss the sport. I miss my team. Um, like I said in the intro, I played 
in college. I played for University of Iowa and the guys I play, there's just something about the sport where the people you play with, you form this brotherhood and you form this connection. And I miss those guys and I miss going out there and getting on the field and looking to my left and, and seeing, seeing some of the guys and looking to the right and seeing them and knowing that they have my back and knowing that I would do anything uh, to help them out in this game and in the sport. And there's just, it was just, a, it's just special. I can't describe it. it. I've been thinking about this all week since I recorded the show and I was kind of like, what do I do to like, if people don't know what rugby's like, what do I say to really help them appreciate it? And I kind of realized it's one of those things, like you just have to go experience it for yourself. And, you know, we could try our best to describe what it's like, but, but there's just so much. And, you know, hopefully in the future I can get some of my old teammates on and maybe we can talk about it, you know, from there. Um, and maybe they could help me express my ideas, but it is like, I, I think it's the companionship, you know, um, I love being an ultra runner right now. I love being a trail runner, but a lot of that is by yourself and you're out in the woods by yourself for hours and hours and hours. And there's something to that, which is why I really enjoyed talking to Angus because not only does he have the team aspect um, from the perspective of a player and from the perspective of a coach, um, but he's gone and he's done these ultra events by himself too. And I think there's things you can gain from both. Like there are lessons that I learned in my early 20s playing rugby that I I haven't gotten from ultra running. And then there's lessons from ultra running that I never got from rugby. And it's just interesting, you know, and from the perspective of like a team working together to accomplish a goal, just rugby's rugby's great. And then it's also the only sport where you get done with the game, you cheer the ref you cheer the other team, you cheer your teammates, and then you go out and you have a beer with the other team. These guys that you just ran into at full speed with your body and they just like laid the smack down on you, um, you go out and you hang out with. And there's, there's that aspect too. And it's just, it's a beautiful game and I hope it catches on in the United States more. And like I said, you know, I, I foresee myself in the future doing more um, to kind of, be a part of of the growth of that like helping out along the way um because it is something that even though i'm probably like six years removed from my last game maybe seven years uh it's something that i still am very passionate about um my last game ended with uh, <laughs> uh i went back to my hometown and I was already done playing for University of Iowa, but they needed a couple people for some spring tournament. So I was like, all right. And I went back to my hometown of Muscatine, Iowa, and we played the like B team for Muscatine or something. And uh, I scored a few times in the game. It was great. It was one of my better games. Uh, I, I played inside and outside center, which is kind of like, quote unquote, like kind of a running back-ish uh, position. Scored a couple times, um, and this giant dude tackled me at the end of the game, and he was actually the dad of this girl I went to uh, high school with. He was this uh, South African guy, and he tackled me, and as the ref is blowing the game, 
done like finished you know like telling us that the game's over he's choking me with my own jersey calling me a tiddlywinks which i'm not even 100 percent sure what that means um and that was my last game and that's <laughs> and uh that's how i ended it and i just remember being like god i love this sport so much uh Coming back to my conversation with Angus, I was laughing because, you know, I asked the question of like, hey, how do we get parents to, you know, get their kids involved, you know? And right after I asked that question, I stupidly told the story of my first practice smashing my nose and just being covered in my own blood. And I was laughing during it because I caught myself. I'm like, that's not a way to promote rugby, man. That's like the stereotypical view of the sport that it's just a bunch of meatheads running into each other right but there's definitely that part of it and i have that part of my personality like i have the meathead part of my personality like i do not deny it 100 like i'm that's there for sure um but this like it's so much more technical than that and honestly that first year when i played my senior year of high school i had no idea what was going on like i just jumped in the game and just started playing and they would blow the they would blow the whistle because something happened and I'm like I have no idea what just happened apparently we're doing a scrum now okay uh and I do the scrum and be like okay and honestly it took me about half of the first year in college before I really started understanding the game but once you understand the game like it is intricate and there's so much involved and so much that goes into it and you know I I loved learning about it. I loved learning about that um, while playing. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like the beginner experience where you go in, you know absolutely nothing. And then every week and every practice, you're learning something new and is mind-blowing. Um, I remember specifically <clears throat> going to a men's practice when I was in high school and kind of like what Angus talked about in the show. Um, here I am like a 17 or 18 year old. Now I'm at a men's practice and our, t our team in town, uh, the, the like richest, one of the richest people in Iowa, uh, decided he was going to hire a bunch of foreign guys to come over like, uh, New Zealanders and Australians and all that stuff, uh, who actually know how to play and are complete badasses. And he decided he was going to have them come over and join the men's team in my small Iowa town. Um, and so anyways, long story short, I show up at this practice. I'm 18. I'm playing against these guys who I'm practicing against these guys who have been playing for their whole entire lives. It seems like at least to me in my, in my eyes. And we line up for this drill and it's just like a, I don't even know. Like you have the ball and you like run into a guy with a pad and he's going to tackle you or you just run into a guy and he's going to tackle you. It's one of those drills. And this is a complete like coming of age moment for me. And actually, I think um, anytime you're doing a contact sport, that first moment where you're going to tackle people or you're going to go live or, or in hockey, you're going to check people or whatever, like that's a coming of age moment. It's terrifying. You're like, wait, you're telling me I have to run full speed into another human being and he's going to try to like knock me down. Um, so anyways, I'm lining up for this drill and... I get the ball and I run towards this giant New Zealand guy and he was one of the forwards uh, and maybe even just like Angus, like one of the front row guys who are huge. 
Um, and it's like running into, like, you know, you're running into flesh and bones, but it feels like you're running into a cement wall. And so I ran into this dude, but I ran and I had the ball in front of me like an idiot now that I know rugby. And the guy just like didn't move one. And then two just grabbed the ball and just took it from my hands. Like it was no big deal. And I fell and my face landed on his feet. And I remember getting up and like wiping the dirt off of my face. And he just looked at me and he's like, he's just like, you got a lot to learn. And he taught me the very first thing, which is like, you got to put the ball on your back hip when you're going to a tackle. And, and just then though, like, I just, I loved it. I loved learning, like I said. And it was, it became something that I was very, very passionate about all through college and all through grad school. And, it's something that's hopefully, like I said, someday I'll, I'll be able to come back to. Um, so, so yeah, it's a great sport. Uh, we'll do more episodes in the future about it. I also just mentioning the Gobi March. Um, if you watch the, the documentary desert runners, um, I think it used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it is anymore, but that race and the person who unfortunately, uh, died during the race that is featured in that documentary. And I didn't make the connection because I was emailing Angus back and forth before the show. And he was like, yeah, I did the Gobi March. I'm like, whoa, like, that's awesome. First of all, you know my obsession about stage races, if you listen to this. So I was like, that's awesome. And also the traveling aspect. And But I didn't make the connection of like, whoa, that was the race in, in Desert Runners where the person unfortunately died and geez like i just imagining the camp trying to come together after that or your own mentality the next day when you have to go back into the desert is 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 really just just a crazy experience and uh it was really interesting having angus on to talk about that anyways that was a long outro guys uh i hope you guys enjoyed the show i know i did and yeah, we'll get back at you next week. We got some cool episodes coming up. I'm super pumped to share them with you guys. Uh, feel free to go on wherever iTunes, uh, the other ones, Stitcher, <laughs> uh, all that stuff to review our show. Um, check out the rugby room on, on YouTube and Podbean. Like I said, I've listened to a few episodes now and I've really been enjoying it. So, uh, Angus, keep that up, man. Uh, all right, guys, we'll get back at you next week. See ya.